Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Victoria Newland, Investment Advisor in Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seager-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about global markets and Tilney's asset allocation and outlook. We're recording the podcast from our homes today on Monday the 4th of October. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, it feels like there's a lot to talk about at the moment with discussion around global growth, inflation and central bank policy dominating the financial world. Firstly, could you put this into context for us and provide a roundup of what's been going on in markets over the last few weeks? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we look back into what happened in September, certainly from a market point of view, I think it's fair to say uh, markets took a bit of a battering overall. Equities obviously took a little bit of a hit. Uh, and importantly, government bonds didn't really provide the safe haven that some t- some people sometimes look for. So quite a broad broad based impact. Um, just by the numbers, for we talked perhaps about uh, about some of the drivers. You know, global developed equities were down minus three point eight percent. Actually, if you look within that, the UK fared reasonably well. Um, still down, but down only two percent. A lot of that was thanks to the exposure uh, of areas such as oil and gas production, whilst having a few less of the, of the more technology orientated stocks. And if you look over at emerging markets, they were off by four point seven percent. So not a great month overall for equities broadly. But again, core sovereign bonds were also off. So when we look at yields, and remember that yields move in the opposite direction to prices. Actually, the ten-year gilt yield rose 30 basis points, that's 0.3%. And that actually puts the 10-year gilt yield just above the 1% mark. Um, And even though that doesn't sound like a lot, that sort of 30 basis point, 0.3% move in yields. If you look at, let's say, an index, there's an index that covers the sort of 5 to 15-year UK government bonds. That index fell 2.4%. So when you've got equities and bonds falling together, that can be a little uncomfortable at a portfolio level. And in the US, 10-year US Treasury yields up not as much, only 18 basis points, and they're now 1.5%. And in commodities, it's a similar story. Some The, the typical assets, gold, uh, not doing very well at all, off 3.3% for the month. So last seen at $1,753 an ounce. The main beneficiary was, was oil, as we look at commodity complex, up 8.8%. You look at Brent crude, which is a, a fairly common measure of oil. It's actually flirting with the $80 mark, uh, last seen at $79.39 a barrel. And of course, all over the news has been what's happening in uh, in natural gas. Um, and finally, just to round it off, sterling was generally weaker, uh, whilst the dollar was particularly strong, sterling around 1% down 
versus the US dollar. And in terms of what was causing a lot of that, what was worrying markets, there's been a whole raft of, of factors. In fact, you know, you could look at it. A lot of investors came back. We talked, I think, last month about silly season and a lot of people on holiday, you tend not to get a lot of activity. But all of those investors and traders coming back from their summer holidays suddenly had a whole range of factors to worry about. Mixed in with that, there's been some withdrawal of stimulus support that's been weighing on markets. We've talked about this a lot, uh, that it's been coming, but markets suddenly alive to, to this, to, to these factors. The end of furlough schemes, uh, the ending of a lot of business continuity loans and grants and so on and so forth. Tying in with that, there's been a surge in energy prices. We talked about oil. We mentioned a, a Listeners will be familiar just how high natural gas prices have been going. That's caused some problems in uh, in the supply market here in the UK. That's reflected across the, the rest of the world. And much of that comes from typical reopening. We're seeing much more demand for for those those kinds of commodities that a, a, a restarting economy will need. On top of that, we've got some political and fiscal tensions over in the US. In China, there's been this big Evergrande issue that sort of fled up, died back down a little bit, but still bubbling along under the surface. And the background to all of that is the prospect of rising interest rates. We've seen more positive uh, in terms of, of rate moves. We've seen more hawkish moves from both the Bank of England and, uh, and the Fed, not moving interest rates, but in terms of the rhetoric and the signalling. And, and against all of that, inflation, even though we still think it's likely to prove transitory, um, it's likely to remain elevated, and that really limits the move for central banks. So whereas historically, when you have these market undulations, maybe central banks would have put in some soothing words, maybe have, have hinted at more stimulus, there's little room for, for central banks to manoeuvre when you do have this, uh, this this inflationary backdrop. So lots of different factors really impacted markets uh, markets over the last month. You touched there just at the end on the Evergrande scandal, which listeners will no doubt have seen in the mainstream media over the last couple of weeks. What actually happened there, Ben, and why has it caused such concern in markets? Well, the the issue with Evergrande is, is is a fairly complicated one, but what it boils down to. In China, you have this huge property developer called Evergrande. It's been involved, of course, in, in property development, um, very, very large scale property development, but it also has stakes in a whole range of businesses, all the way from, from electric vehicles to, to bottled water. And it's actually considered to be the world's most indebted property company. Its balance sheet sits at 368 billion. That's sort of the the, the, the value that, that sits on the balance sheet. It's difficult to, to consider its market pricing because obviously the, the value of, of debt and equity has been moving around a lot. But of that, around 300 billion uh, is in debt outstanding. Now, most of that is owed within uh, the system in China itself, um, but it is still a very heavily indebted company. It owes money to suppliers and contractors who are, who are, who are currently suing the company over unpaid bills. And the reason that it's come to everyone's attention, it's now potentially struggling to make payments on some of this debt. Uh, and that's triggered default fears. Um, in terms of, of what may or may not happen, it's difficult to know. But clearly having uh, debt default considerations floating around in the market, that's going to unsettle people and that's going to impact, settle, uh, impact sentiment. Some of those fears within China, you have some debt that, that goes into structured bonds and structured products that can, that can sort of precipitate out that risk to the broader market within China. So there's a lot of concern there over, uh, over ultimately what it means. 
and any risk of default naturally unsettles markets. People start worrying about the risk of contagion, the risk of, of knock-on effects and what other risks there, there may be around. So that's what's happened and that's why it's got into the news. And that's why it's impacting sentiment. What I would say, in one sense, it can sound quite scary, but I think there's there's quite a few reasons not to worry too much at this stage. Why we think for now, contagion risk is uh, is pretty low. And you've got to consider, I think, some of the background to this. And in one sense, what we've seen for, for many years is the Chinese authorities trying to, to rein in some of this, what they view as, as excessive capitalism, and that this is perhaps the, the, the most latest instant of that. We've seen actually over the last 12 months a lot more cracking down. We saw some of the, the educational uh, fintech companies getting cracked down the last couple of months. We've seen Alibaba and Alipay and uh, Didi all coming under a little bit of pressure. So we've talked about this this recently. And you could view this as just the latest um, episode in, in this much broader saga. And the Chinese authorities are trying to crack down on this so-called capitalism with Chinese characteristics, some of the more excessive parts, uh, excessive practices perceived by China, the capitalist system, there's clearly a drive to to crack down on those. It doesn't do too well uh, in the communist country for for people to be seen to be getting too rich, particularly when your average man on the street might not be doing quite so well. So it's sort of part of that, in a sense. Evergrande, to a greater or lesser extent, is a little bit of an outlier in terms of how aggressive its strategy has been. We've noted it was the most indebted of those developers. So given it sits on the fringes and there's been some some tightening uh, of activity in, in China, it's perhaps no surprise that a company on the edge is the one that's, that's un, under extreme pressure. And I don't think there's any immediate reason to think that other companies might be in the same situation, given, given how far out Evergrande was. So within that, you might consider... Perhaps this is more of a warning shot for, from the government, highlighting to, to those involved in some of the more speculative parts of the market that the government won't bail you out and perhaps wanting others to, to maybe encourage a little bit more conservatism in, in the way that they're, they're deploying capital. So what's happening now, the company is selling down stakes in other businesses, try and meet payments. There's some suggestion the government's involved Again, not trying to save the company, it could well be seen as a a warning shot, but they are interested in ensuring an orderly decline. What that means, there are reports that state-owned companies are being pushed to support some of these sales, um, allowing uh, some financial damage potentially on the more speculative parts of the market, maybe high net worth individuals, some of those companies that that provided financing, showing a little bit of financial damage, a little bit of pain uh, to, to enact that sort of warning shot. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little bit more support to people like ordinary retail investors that got caught up in this. There's no interest, I don't think, at a government level to to inflict uh, much damage on the retail investors. So I think it'll be very targeted. I think it's definitely one to watch, but I wouldn't expect too much fallout from this incident uh, at the time. So a lot of news stories, but very, very manageable from what we can currently see. I think it's probably fair to say. A very uh, thorough explanation. Thank you. Um, Another crisis rattling market, though, is the US debt ceiling. Again, I wonder if you could um, explain the mechanics of that and any potential impact on markets. Are there any similarities here with the US government shutdown of December 2018 under Trump's presidency? I seem to recall that the 35-day shutdown didn't actually have too significant an impact on, on markets in the end then. 
Um, it's it's definitely an issue that rolls around periodically every sort of three, four or, or five years. Um, but it is worth highlighting these are very much political events. And more often than, than not, one does expect them to, to, to be managed through and to try and moderate. That's sort of the idea of these things. It's a political it's political leverage often to put, uh, to, to put pressure on the ruling party. And it's worth highlighting that there are two separately, separate issues here. Often the debt ceiling and government shutdowns are wrapped together in one broader package. It's important to remember, technically they are different and, it, uh, and it's, it's worth going into the details. Government funding is essentially a funding and, and a, a sort of budgeting bill um, whereby the government agrees to various budgets to pay things like government staff, agencies, and government programs. So if you don't have that funding approval, that's where you get the shutdown. And in fact, if uh, the US did pass a stopgap measure on Friday, because if they hadn't have done that on Friday, then the government isn't authorized to actually pay its staff to pay these programs. So it has to start effectively shutting down. So what happened in the event that the government agreed to stopgap funding measure, people can continue to be paid, governments can, can go back to, to their activity. But technically, that's separate to uh, separate to the, to the U.S. debt ceiling, and that is effectively uh, a, the U.S. legislature has rolling limits that it sets itself on how much it can borrow. So it separates out the spending decisions from how it's going to be funded. And in a sense, the idea behind it is to to have a self-imposed fiscal discipline. In reality, it's often a political weapon. So that the, the U.S. government gets to decide how much it's going to borrow, almost completely ignoring all, all the spending commitments it's already made. So with one bill, it agrees all of these things that we'll fund and we'll make payments for. It then separately decides how much money it's going to try and uh, how much money it's going to raise to fund those. Of course, it needs to do a high level of borrowing to fund these commitments. There's no indication that there's any problem raising the debt ceiling. But if you are a Republican, when the Democrats control much of government, it's a, it's a weapon that you can use. So as it stands today, there's authorization to pay all of uh, all of government employees or fund all the programs. The problem is the government is running out of money to actually make those payments. Now, on the current run rate, probably the government has already run out, has already hit its uh, borrowing ceiling. But there are various measures that the government can use. It can move budgets around. It can you use sort of very uh, clever budgetary techniques to continue making the payment it has to. But if you listen to the government, they say at the moment, Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, previously ran the Fed. The government reckons and the Treasury thinks it will run out of money on the 18th of October. So there's still plenty to play for. There's lots of negotiations going on. Um, it seems, all things considered, very unlikely, never say never, it seems very unlikely that some sort of agreement wouldn't be made. The government ultimately has to make uh, a lot of these payments. The idea of the government defaulting on its debt seems almost inconceivable. US government debt, US treasuries are considered the safest, uh, is considered the safest assets in the world. Um, it has AAA ratings, broadly speaking. It's considered the global safe haven asset. If they were to default, it would cause huge damage across the piece. It may not even be constitutional if you listen to, to certain lawyers. So I think it's, it's very unlikely, it's extraordinarily unlikely that some sort of agreement won't be made. Um, but I think, as with all these things, politicians like brinkmanship, and until they have that pressure 
of a looming deadline. They're probably just going to drag their feet a little bit. A lot of this is politics. A lot of this is uh, is negotiating what can and can't go through. There are infrastructure bills going through government at the moment as well, which feeds into the political nature. So all expectations are the debt ceiling will get to a resolution. It will probably get a little bit hairy as, as we close on that deadline. But as we've seen before, it's that time pressure that politicians need to come to an agreement. Thank you. And I have one final question for you. At the time of recording the podcast last month, our Asset Allocation Committee were in the process of reviewing our allocations across Tilney's seven investment strategies. I wonder if you could just finally talk us through our outlook in terms of both asset class and region. Absolutely. And this this is where I think asset allocation meets uh, longer term asset allocation and and our extended views of the outlook meet some of the short-term noise. So obviously on this podcast, we talk a lot about what's happening uh, at the moment, how that impacts the view. But actually, when you're investing, there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of noise. It normally pays to just take a longer-term view and see what changes in the outlook. And actually, a lot of most recent events haven't really changed our outlook. Um, hopefully, I haven't checked, but hopefully if, you can't, if, if listeners go back to what we said in January our outlook was very much one of positive uh, environment for equities on the longer term potential recovery. Some bumps in the road, those have manifested and perhaps those will continue uh, for, for the, the, med- the medium term. We highlighted the risks of furlough coming off. All of these things are already to an extent in our outlook. And the reality comes down to the fact that equities still look relatively attractive. They're one of the few asset classes where you can have a positive real growth outlook, real in the sense of after the effects of inflation, equities still have the capacity to generate longer term returns and they're an attractive asset class, but they do come with a higher sort of risk return profile. So the outlook for equities is still pretty positive. Within that, we have a marginal preference for non-US developed countries, so the likes of UK, Europe and Japan um, over the US. The US has had a good run. It's still a high quality market. It looks a little bit expensive, even compared to its own history. The US often trades a slight premium to, to global markets, but even com- taking account of that, the US has had a good run. It looks pretty expensive. Um, and it's possible the US had some early uh, gains from economic reopening. Some of that may now move to, to the rest of the world. So within equities, favoring the non US and equity still look a pretty decent place to be. The area we're most wary on is fixed income. Um, again, as we've been highlighting through the year, so nothing particularly changes, but interest rates only look like they're, they're going to go one way. And ultimately, central banks are going to have to withdraw the QE stimulus and start thinking about increasing interest rates. So that makes any exposure to nominal rates, that's normal interest rate exposure, pretty unattractive. So throughout this year, we've kept our exposure to, to interest rates pretty low. And that continues as we see uh, the, the rate outlook uh, looking ever higher. What we can do within fixed income, we can have short dated corporate credit. So short dated limits your exposure to interest rates. We do get the, these coupons for, from um, corporate credit coming through so that offers you the potential for some returns. That looks relatively attractive. We also continue to, to advocate as we've been holding for quite a while now for, from sort of middle of last year, index linked bond exposure. So those are government bonds. Um, we actually favor US, uh, US exposure, but hedge back to sterling. And those can give you a, a, a positive return if inflation expectations start picking up. They are still exposed indirectly 
to, to nominal rates, but there's an inflation element in there as well. So the potential for higher inflation expectations can actually make those look relatively attractive and help to, to buffer um, against any shocks in that area that's obviously a key risk outlook. And then within alternatives, so in a multi-asset portfolio, you have your high-risk equity uh, portion, high-risk, high-growth sort of part. Uh, most multi-asset portfolios, except the most aggressive ones, need that sort of dampening. And as we become less keen on fixed income and remain less keen, there's a greater role, I think, for alternative asset classes. That includes the likes of gold, um, which again can can act as a bit of a buffer in portfolios, particularly if uh, if real interest rates fall, so inflation starts to pick up. Gold can be uh, reasonably attractive. We also like absolute return vehicles or hedge fund-like uh, vehicles. They can generate a sort of moderate risk return, and they have low correlation with equities. The idea there is to, to clip out a relatively steady uh, return overall from a from a sort of sub portfolio point of view. And that makes them relatively attractive as well. So that's our current positioning. Uh, within that, the key things we're, we're keeping an eye on, the key sort of tail risks and, and the downside risks we're looking at is any sort of change in inflation expectations, um, potential for some geopolitical risk out there. And of course, policy error, be that central banks over tightening or prematurely tightening monetary policy, or indeed governments uh, over tightening uh, the, the fiscal policy. Those are key areas that we're looking for as well. Ben, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening. 